Recently, I read a story about a man I'm going to call Bill. He was taking his son, Michael, to a dental appointment one Friday afternoon. Upon arrival at the office, they noticed that there weren't any parking places nearby, so Bill dropped Michael off at the office door so that he wouldn't be late for his appointment. While he went over to the adjacent parking lot and found a place to park and then would return to the office. He quickly made his way through the mall, jogged up four flights of stairs to the next street, owing across the street to the office. As he approached the office, he suffered a major heart attack. He has little memory of the incident and not very much of even the days just before it. So he's had to piece uh, the story together by asking a couple of, a lot of questions. Apparently what happened was as he was falling, a dental assistant had been taking the trash out and noticed that he fell and his head hit the pavement hard, bounced up and hit the pavement again. So it was quite obvious that there was something wrong. Two passers-by also noticed and realized something serious had happened and immediately put him in a recovery position. For those of you who are like me and have very little understanding of medical things, that is the recovery position. The dental assistant returned to the office and on the way, of course, called um, the emergency people. Um, the, she told the dentist, excuse me, she told the dentist what had happened. He came out immediately and started mouth to mouth. However, found that it was doing very little good. So he got an oxygen mask. When the emergency services arrived, they attempted to revive him. They found no pulse. They found no evidence of breathing. And so, of course, had to use the defibrillator. After some attempts, they rev he revived and they got him to the hospital where he had the second heart attack. So he was once again put on a ventilator this time and put into a medically induced coma. Amazingly enough, by Sunday morning, he was off the ventilator and recovered and was able to write his story about a year or so later. As you can imagine, this experience left Bill with many questions that I'm sure you've asked at some point in your life. Maybe even today you're asking, what was God doing in the midst of all that had taken place? Or what is God doing? Why would God allow you to go through the particularly difficult and painful experience? You've maybe even wondered why he seemed to be leading you in one direction and Suddenly, you're going in a different direction. When David wrote our passage for today, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. By the way, I liked um, Liliana's version better. I wish I had had it on my slide. Um, David is reminding us that regardless of how dark the circumstances of our life may be, despite the uncertainty that we face, um, our future is not opaque to God. In fact, 
God may well be the one who is behind the uncertainties. As we explore these verses, I hope to find a clearer understanding of the nature and character of God, perhaps even understand why at times it feels as if he's conspiring against me, and possibly you. Considering that we recently completed a study of the book of Genesis in our Sabbath school class, and with, of course, ending with Joseph's life, and the fact that we are in verge of this monumental VBS, which will study the life of Joseph, thus the attire, um, I thought it would be appropriate to compare Joseph's life in an attempt to shed some light on our passage for today. So pray with me for just a moment. Father, as we look at this life and our own, we pray that your spirit will be here among us to guide it in the words, in our understanding, in our hearts, that we can comprehend just a little more of your character and plan for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The early, the early years of Joseph's life don't show any great promise. Like David, he comes from a rather insignificant, modest background. He's a shepherd boy. He's the 11th in the line of 12 sons. He's somewhat of a dreamer, favored by his father, and consequently disliked strongly by his brothers. He is seemingly insignificant, and yet because we know what he became, the first question I like to ask is, what is it that God saw in Joseph that brought him from being a slave in Egypt to being one of the most powerful persons in the country? We first meet Joseph in Genesis 37. He's 17 years old. He's on the verge of early adulthood. And like most young adults, he's probably wrestling with his identity, looking for acceptance among his family and peers, um, beginning to recognize his own gifts, and probably asking big questions about his future. We are told that he is his father's favorite son, the child of his old age, and the affection of his father is clear, perhaps most clear in the gift of the richly ornamented robe it was the strongest evidence that the affection and favoritism of Jacob toward him was strong. Um, it said loud and clear, Joseph was his favorite and that he was someone special. No wonder by the time we get to verse 4 in that chapter, we're told that his other brothers hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Living in a hostile, dysfunctional family environment where anger, jealousy, resentment, and hatred occur daily creates a tense and volatile atmosphere. And yet Joseph seems oblivious to it all. Um, with considerable insensitivity toward his brothers, he flaunted not only his coat of many colors, but his father's favoritism as well. However, things are about to change. Before we talk about it further, though, I want to, um, as we're going to review this Genesis narrative, let's be careful, because it's easy to think that the focal point of this story is Joseph, 
or maybe his brothers. However, the main character in this story is not Joseph, it's not his brothers, it's not even Jacob, his father. Um, neither is it about Joseph's other famous relatives, Isaac and Abraham. The main character and the one we want to focus on throughout Genesis, and especially in this story um, of unfolding God, uh, Joseph's life, is God. Why is he orchestrating and engineering the circumstances around this person's life. Silently and unobtrusively, God is refining and transforming this life to remove the privileged favoritism and domestic comfort of Joseph. He's leading him to a position that God can use to bring glory to his name. In this story, God uses a dream. Perhaps in your life, God's going to use something different. But one thing is sure, God will use whatever it takes to bring you to a place of utter dependency on him. So what is it that God's doing with these dreams? They're found in verses 5 to 7. You remember that Joseph and his brothers are harvesting grain, and Joseph's sheaf stands straight up while his brother's sheaves bow to him. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph has a second dream where the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow to him. In the giving of these two dreams, it's pretty evident that God is revealing something important. And Joseph, with unrestricted excitement, unwisely shares these dreams with his brothers. It appears that Joseph has a remarkable gift from God. And Joseph's gift is in pretty good shape. Joseph, not so much. He needs a little bit, well, maybe significant preparation and polishing in order for God to instill in him and make him the man he has planned for him to be. Joseph has been called and chosen by God, given an incredible gift that will enable him to become the governor of Egypt, but he lacks the maturity to use the gift given him. At this point in his life, he is so wrapped up in himself that he believes the gift is all about him and little to do with the purposes of God. Joseph is blissfully unaware of a few verses before the, um, chap the verses that Liliana um, read for us where it says that you hem me in and behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. There is a note of hope in the Genesis narrative as we get to verse 11. His brothers were very jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Does Jacob remember his own dream several years before when he left his father's house and fell asleep there in Bethel? Is Jacob... No, does Jacob know from a personal experience that God is working in his own life and probably starting some kind of work in Joseph's life? Could it be that Jacob perceives this? You see, one of my favorite takeaways from this story so far is that we don't have to be perfect before God begins to work in us, to mold and fashion us, to use as he sees fit. 
Joseph needed considerable refining. His relationship with God and his understanding of God needed some attention. His appreciation of what he was being prepared for was non-existent. Yet in all of this, God's hand was on Joseph, and there is something happening in Joseph's life. Do you feel that your own life has had a bad start from many points? Perhaps you had parents who didn't really love you. Perhaps you had limited opportunities for education. Maybe you're struggling with self-esteem, abuse, low confidence. Perhaps you've been hurt and disappointed so badly that you struggle with some emotional wounds. The dreams you had when you were 17 have not materialized the way you expected. Yet, as we have discovered, Joseph's upbringing in a dysfunctional family was not a barrier to what God was about to do. The New Testament reminds us in Acts 7-9 that despite all the difficulties and what appeared to be knots tied up in Joseph's life, God was with him, and God is with you. No impediment, no personality difficulty, no family problems, no lack of education or career opportunities can stand in the way of God's refining and shaping you into the person he has planned for you and the person that he is calling you to be. I recently read an article from a study conducted by a delegation from the National or from the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. After extensive analysis centering on the area around the um, Alexandrian and Port Said um, areas in Egypt, the research team was able to definitively comment on the differences between the alligator and the crocodile. The article went into a lot of lengths describing the overall head shape, the skin color, the bite pattern, the position of the extremities on the alligator and the crocodile that, that told you why they had that certain gait or their certain walk and how they were different. Um, the length and breadth of the snout, actually the whole length and breadth of the whole animal was discussed. And still, apparently, the major difference between an alligator and the crocodile is that one of them you will see later and the other one you will see in a while. Okay, I know, my attempt at humor is a little bit lame. <laughs> However, the point is that when I started this story, you expected a grand conclusion. What you got was a little bit different. As we explore the phrase in our Bible for today, even the darkness will not be dark to, get to you, we will find Joseph expecting he is heading in a particular direction and finds that's all wrong. The conclusion or what really happens is very different. He is about to enter a period in his life that is so dark that I expect he thought his life would be over soon. He is in the darkest night. The ever-increasing dislike of Joseph by his brothers manifests itself in hatred and violence as they plan to attack and kill him. It's difficult for me to imagine what must be going on through Joseph's mind. 
as his brothers turn violent, beat him, strip him of his clothes, deposit him in an empty cistern, and plan to take his life. Yet amid the chaos of that attack, God shows he has other plans. Joseph's life is spared, and instead he is sold as a slave into Egypt. Now as a slave, Joseph is forced to adapt to a whole new series of circumstances. They are not of his choosing. The impact of this drastic change could easily have crushed him. Yet we hear often in this chapter that God is with him and continuing to prepare him in a way he could have never imagined. Joseph is definitely not prepared for this sudden change of circumstances as he journeys toward Egypt. I can only imagine that he wrestles with the reality of this new situation and probably is sure that there is no way out of this, no way back to normal. I am convinced that at this point in his life, he's sure there is no see you later or see you after a while ever gonna happen. Can you relate? Have you been forced into a whole new reality that had nothing to do with your choosing or anything that you wanted? Your situation has been forced on you, maybe by an illness, maybe by a loss of job, or maybe even a marriage that is falling apart that you didn't see coming. One thing is certain, however, you feel that nothing will ever be the same again. That's when God calls and begins to refine you. He does a thorough job of it, too, never leaving anything to chance. The amazing thing is that we often don't even realize what's going on while it's happening. God is quietly working to refine who I am. In Egypt, we find Joseph is sold into the house of Potiphar. Now comes another adjustment. And I can imagine in the early days, while Joseph's there, he surely wished he was back home. He missed his father. He missed his family. He probably questioned how they were doing. Was his father, did his father know he was still alive? What had his brothers told his father about what had happened? But undoubtedly, the most probing question for Joseph was, why would my brothers do this to me? Those of us reading Genesis know what's going on, but Joseph would not have had a clue. We know that God is actively at work. God had begun the emancipation process in the life of Joseph, even though Joseph was totally unaware of what was happening. Have you wondered about the mess in your life? Could it be possible that God is conspiring against you? Have you asked, why are you doing this to me, God? Surely some of those issues were loud in Joseph's mind at first. I expect Joseph felt abandoned. However, in the first few verses of Genesis 39, we discovered that despite all of this experience Joseph has been through, despite his lack of understanding of what has happened, he's doing remarkably well. It probably took some time to settle into his new environment, but he's prospering and eventually becomes his master's personal assistant, living in 
very nice surroundings. Um, and all of this because, as it was repeated several times in these verses, the Lord was with Joseph. All of this with Joseph did not go unnoticed. Even the impact on Potiphar, as he notices how much he can trust Joseph, is apparent. Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole household and never thinks another thing about it. That's a lot of the Lord was with Joseph going on. And despite all of this wonderful things happening, there's no dreams. There's no gift. Joseph's gift is not present. And yet Joseph prospers because the Lord is with him. You see, that's because God is more interested in maturing and developing Joseph as a person than he is in developing and using the gifts he has given him. Let that sink in. I know I often think the gifts God's given me, I've got to do blah, 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 blah with. God is more interested in developing you as a person than he is in making your gifts more pronounced. Joseph is learning the importance of trustworthiness, integrity, and character as more important qualities than are his ability to use his talents and his gifts. And now, when it seems that all is well, Joseph is prospering, he's in charge of his master's household, a new trial comes his way. And again, it's a trial from an unexpected source and not one of his own choosing. A trial that will test what he has been learning. Will the trustworthiness and integrity of character win in this new trial? You see, Joseph is well-built. He's a hunk. Okay, I know, I've dated myself, and I'm, forgive me, I don't know the lingo of 2022, but suffice it to say, Joseph is very good-looking. Um, and Potiphar's wife is so attracted to him and wants him. Without any hesitation, Joseph's response is no. This situation has demonstrated that Joseph's come a long way from the days when he thought that life was all about him, when he was bragging about how important he was to his brothers. He's no longer wrapped up in himself and believing that he's the most important person in the room. You see, Joseph has become a supernatural individual in that he made his relationship with God paramount. God had birthed in him a commitment to live for him every day. Joseph had already answered in his mind the question of purity, and the decision does not need to be made at the point of this temptation beyond the fact that he will be consistent in the decision that he previously made to be pure for God's glory. Remember, this wasn't a one-time temptation. It had been going on for several weeks, perhaps months. But for Joseph, his life is open before God, and his relationship with God is more real to him than anything or anyone else. His decision stands firm. Joseph walks away, well, actually runs away. You see, the best response to temptation is, just get out of there. 
However, Joseph's response sends a message loud and clear to Potiphar's wife. There's no way she's going to get what she wants. Her anger boils over to concoct lies about him, which she spreads abroad all the way to her husband. This, in turn, causes Joseph to once again be stripped of his freedom. He is sent to prison for something he never did. You know, when I'm up against a challenging situation and I reject that temptation, I feel elated that I have done well. But when tested over a long period of time and I continue to pass this test in an exemplary fashion, no one notices, no one encourages me, no one sends a warm email saying, well done. When no one recognizes that I was in the right, it's even more difficult. And difficult as all that is, it must have been even more difficult for Joseph to have no one around and be punished for something he never did. This test is proving to be even more aggressive than being sold as a slave. You've heard it said often that God opens doors of opportunity on small hinges, but the door that God opens for Joseph leads to a prison cell. Joseph has been outstanding in his response to an overwhelming temptation, and now it seems that his faithfulness was for nothing. His faithfulness is repaid with a prison. Where was God when Joseph needed him most? How could God allow this awful thing to happen when Joseph was faithful and trustworthy, stood out in his integrity. If you're undergoing a trial right now that you've never experienced before, please consider the jarring possibility that God may be paying you his highest compliment. Because you see, God's single focus in allowing difficulties into our lives is to make us more Christ-like. When God allows a new kind of trial, remember that he notices everything about your response. And despite the fact that Joseph was developing a deep love and affection for God that kept him from falling into sin, God wasn't finished with him. And God may not be finished with you. God had a grand future plan for Joseph. And he was working patiently and faithfully to accomplish that plan even though from Joseph's perspective, languishing in prison seems that God is absent and doesn't recognize what he's done. He hasn't seen Joseph's faithfulness. But at the end of chapter 39, we get a small measure of hope. You see, it's interesting to me that chapter 39 begins by saying the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home with his Egyptian master. And at the end of the chapter, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. The Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Long Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. Yes, 
God had a grand future planned, and the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed, even in prison. I believe that this is a clear demonstration of our scripture today that says, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Despite the prison life and all the darkness that was there, God was far from finished with Joseph. There was a light shining. Today, we live in a world of instant gratification. If you need anything, any information on anything, what do you do? You Google it. Even I do that. If you don't like the TV show you're watching, what do you do? You go to Netflix, you go to Disney Channel, YouTube, Hulu, on and on and on the list goes. Maybe even a movie you've downloaded before. You don't have to wait for your favorite show. Just change channels. And when you are in a situation that demands waiting, such as a grocery line, you change lines, right? But if you're still stuck and you can't get out of it, what's the first thing you do? You pull out the cell phone and you go through it, you look at messages, you look for something to watch. You don't just sit there and wait. Waiting is something we just don't like to do in our age. Even though we know there are some moments that waiting is required, such as a new baby, such as graduation, marriages, raising children, persevering in a job that's a little bit tough because you want a career. Some situations require waiting, but it's tough. Waiting has rewards, but it doesn't feel that way when you're going through them. Joseph has waited in prison for some time when the baker and cupbearer are put there because Pharaoh is disgusted with them. Really? Pharaoh gets the credit for this? I think not. I think that God is orchestrating the situation because chapter 40 indicates several times as you read through it, sometime later, or after they had been in prison sometime, or it took some time, but it's a clear emphasis on the timing of events. I don't know about you, but I'm certain for me, the hardest thing in the Christian life is to be totally content with God's timing. You know, I'm the one that knows the situation I'm in, and I know how to figure out. God gave me the brain, right? So it's up to me to figure out how to get out of that situation. I know what to do. I can come up with a plan to resolve the situation. Being confident in and utterly dependent on God and his timing is not easy. You see, it's impossible to trust God when you are trying to fit him in to your timing schedule. This is now the principle that Joseph needs to learn. It needs to become a part of his DNA. God had selected Joseph to be a major player in the redemptive plan, a plan that would impact his family, a whole nation, even the future of the Israel nation, 
all the way down to today. Joseph's life as impacting us today. And God knew Joseph needed to learn just a little bit more about waiting on his timing. Like most of us, Joseph was sure he was ready to live totally for God and was all prepared to do so. Yet God saw it differently and used the darker side of of providence to prepare Joseph even further. When we go through a difficult or painful experience, it's nearly impossible to grasp the concept of God's providence. Would it help to know that in his providence, even during the days of disappointment and distrust, he's still at work? You can trust him despite the pain you're experiencing? You know, it's a little bit like that five-year-old that had to go to the doctor. And when he got there, he was diagnosed with an allergic reaction. Those of you who know that, you know that it requires an injection. When the five-year-old sees the doctor coming with this long needle, he naturally runs to daddy for protection. And dad must hold him down while the needle is inserted. Ugh, yuck, ooh. However, it's that same dad who comforts and hugs him afterwards. At five, you can't possibly comprehend that what you need most is the thing that will cause you pain. Just so, Joseph is learning that for maturing and growing faith to happen, a joy rooted in his own comfort won't last, but joy rooted in the character of God will never desert him. The dark side of providence drives you into the arms of a father who lives above the here and now and the emotion of the moment. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now we see as chapter 40 unfolds that in God's providence, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer have angered Pharaoh and are sent to the same prison Joseph is in. God sends each of them a dream that distresses them, for, for they don't understand the meaning. Now, finally, an opportunity for Joseph to use his God-given gift. Joseph inquires regarding their sadness, gives God the glory by telling each of them what, that it is God who will interpret this. The dreams have meaning, and they come to pass, just as Joseph has told them. I can just see Joseph elated. Woohoo! he finally thought. God has brought this to pass and is at work in my life. He is going to free me at last. He's heard my prayers. I should have trusted in his providence. After all, um, God is there and working for me. So Joseph requests the cupbearer to remember him when he's released and let Pharaoh know that Joseph's here and doesn't belong here. He never did what he was in prison for. I can just imagine Joseph thinking, finally, he's worked for me. Oh, wait a minute. The last verse of that chapter says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. If you're Joseph, you're still wondering what's happened. 
After some time, he obviously would realize that he has been forgotten again. He had, I'm sure he had many questions. Wait a minute, God. You did all this. You brought them to me. Why? What is going on here? I thought you were working for me. Am I attempting to run ahead of your schedule? Was Joseph's attempt to be remembered something done from his need to advance himself? We're never going to know answers to these questions. But it is as if God shook his head and said, Sharon, don't you trust me? Let me handle this. You really can depend on me. Trust me, I can do this. You see, Joseph is still learning one of the toughest lessons that any Christian needs. When you are willing to stop interfering, when you come to the end of yourself with nowhere else to go and nothing else to say, utterly, entirely surrendered and submit every area of your life to the rule and reign of God, it's then and only then you are ready to move forward. Did it take a full year, or full two years, excuse me, for Joseph to come to that point? It probably has taken me a lot longer. So I'm not really going to speculate on how long it took Joseph. But suffice it to say that over the next two years, God is at work in Joseph's life. God is orchestrating things to bring Joseph to the point where he has planned for him. I know there are times in your life and mine when we can't possibly comprehend why God allows problems that cause such pain and grief. But in the process, he may take you to a place where you learn to entirely cast yourself on him, a place where you come to the end of your own strength so that you can no longer rely on yourself, but only him. At the beginning of our discussion, I asked the question, what is it that God saw in Joseph that brought him from being a slave when he first arrived in Egypt to being one of the most powerful men in the country? Now it's time to answer that question. It's not so much what God saw in Joseph, but what Joseph saw in God and experienced under his refining hand that enabled him to ultimately utterly and profoundly depend on the Lord alone. I found a poem that was sent to Jimmy Stewart long ago after he lost his son in the Vietnam War that I think says it pretty well. In pastures green? No, not always so. Sometimes he who knoweth best in kindness leads me in weary ways where heavy shadows be. Out of sunshine, warm and soft and bright. Out of sunshine into darkest night. I oft would faint with sorrow and affright. Only for this I know, he holds my hand. So in green or desert land, I trust him. Whether though I do not always understand. And by still waters? No, not always so. Oftentimes the heavy tempests round me blow and o'er my soul the waves and billows go. But when the storm beats loudest and I cry aloud for help, the master stands by and whispers to my soul, Lo, it is I. 
Above the tempest wild I hear him say, Beyond this darkness lies the perfect day. In every path of thine I lead the way. So whether on the hilltops high and fair I dwell, or in the sunless valleys where the shadows lie, what matters? He is there. And more than this, where'er the pathway lead, he gives to me no helpless broken reed. By his own hand, sufficient for my need. So where'er he leads me, I can safely go. And in the blessed hereafter, I shall know why in his wisdom he has led me so. It's not so much what God sees in you, but what you see in God and experience under his loving, refining hand that enables you to ultimately depend on him and prayerfully say, Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. <laughs>